0: Good morning. My name is Jeff, and uh, I, um, I'm assuming that most of you know who I am. Um, but uh, to uh, to reiterate, I'm uh, most commonly known as Karis's dad, and uh, even better, Eli and Cassie's papa, and uh, which is the best gig ever. It's really amazing, uh, and Jason's uh, father-in-law. Um, I was uh, Jason's old professor and, uh, and pastor as well, and um, loved having him as a student. And Angela and I have really loved watching he and Karis with you. We just want to thank you for his, you know, being parents, uh, uh, watching you embrace our kids uh, has been a blast. And uh, absorb them into your community and let them love you and you love them has been really uh, edifying to, to see. And uh, we're really grateful to be here with you uh, for a period of time, and glad that we can open up God's word together. Um, Holiness is an idea that has been with me since I can remember. I mean, I I probably started hearing about this when I was Izzy's age. Uh, It was a very, very um, uh, steady kind of idea of holiness. I grew up in the great state of Alabama. And so I was in the Bible Belt in the early 1970s um, in a Baptist setting. So you can only imagine what holiness was described as. It was typically a list of things that I could not do, the vast majority of which I wanted to do. uh, And as long as I did not do those things, then there was some element of holiness that sort of emerged from that. It's a really strange, now that I'm a Christian, uh, it's, it's a strange way to talk about it. I'm sure all those Sunday school teachers that I had, all well-intended, I can still see them in my mind, and, and, um, and uh, just wonderful, wonderful people, but, but it was a really weird way to talk about holiness. Um, I remember the first time that I read Leviticus 19, and thought to myself, that. <laughs> That's really not what I was taught at all. Uh, it was, uh, that, that was quite strange how divorced Leviticus 19 and this, this weighty, broad testimony of holiness was from just this really parochial list of things that I think anybody actually could have done or not done, regardless if they were Christian or not. This was a really unique way to talk about something like holiness. And holiness is a prominent and powerful element. I mean, Paul states, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So you say, I need to know what this is, right? This is a very important idea. And um, I don't know if there's any other text that's more prominent uh, to teach us on the notion of holiness than Leviticus 19. And so I'm going to read the entire text for us, and then I'll break uh, this down into three particular uh, areas that holiness is relational, holiness is systemic, and holiness is social. And then we'll, we'll chat a little bit about what that might look like for us on this side of the cross. Leviticus 19. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gold of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that it may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it's eaten at all on the third day, it's tainted. It will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he's profaned what is holy to the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor, for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God." You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him, the wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until morning, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two different kinds of seeds, or shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two different kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for that sin that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, Then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. For three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you shall eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat any flesh with blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do to him wrong. You shall not treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall, not, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length, or weight, of quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, just ephah, and just hen. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Well, you can tell this is a very wide system of talking about holiness. And there are a lot of things in here that we probably won't get to today. I've always fascinated about the things that people are interested in in this chapter. Almost always, it's wearing two different types of fabric. Um, I will go ahead and just say, for those of you who are doing the half cotton, half polyester today, you're okay. You're good. <laughs> and, um, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. I'm so sorry about sniffing. I uh, have allergies. Um, But let's talk about our first point there. Our very first point is perhaps the most substantial thing to know about holiness. If you don't know this about holiness, you're talking probably about holiness in the sort of the way a pagan does or in a way that uh, some other religion might. All religions use this word. But only Christians can say this. The most important thing about holiness, holiness is relational. Holiness is relational. The the most important section about this is driven by the concept of relationship. These laws are not given to Moab or Assyria. They're given to Israel. And Israel is holy specifically because God is holy. Let's just look at a couple of of things. We can go all the way back to Exodus 19 and glance there just really quickly. This is the first time that Israel is called this. Go back to verse 4 of Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you'll speak to the people of Israel. There is literally no precedent in the ancient world For a deity calling all of a nation to be his in this way, but certainly calling them all to be priests. That is a very distinct, very technical idea in the ancient world. But here, God says to all of Israel, all of you are priests. In other words, all of you will function as my holy priesthood simply because you belong to me. He emphasizes that. The entire earth is mine, but you, you belong to me in a very unique way. You belong to me in such a unique way that you will convey the reality of me to the watching world. You get that back in Leviticus, Leviticus 18. 18, 19, and 20 are very commonly and justifiably seen as one unit. And so look at verse 18, starting with the second verse. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. And then you get that that phrase that you heard over and over and over again in Leviticus 19. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore... Keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, you'll live by them. I am the Lord. Holiness comes from relationship. In other words, ethics is driven by relationship. For example, um, uh, I was in uh, a, a Middle Eastern country one time with a group of Muslim students and um, it was late at night. It was at this uh, Uka Cafe in the middle of Taksim Square in Turkey. And um, and I'd been talking to them pretty, I mean, directly about, you know, the deity of Jesus and who Christians thought Jesus was, I guess who Muslims thought Jesus was, things like that. And I had a, a, a student of mine that, that lived there that was with me. <laughs> and one of them says, uh, Dr., Dr. Mooney, which they... Persistently pronounced Dr. Muni, and uh, I said, "Dr. Muni, would you like to know a secret?" Well, I mean, if you like, the only American guy in the middle of you know Turkey, and a group of other guys want to tell you a secret, the standard answer is, "No, I do not want to know any secrets." And and uh, they said, "We will tell you a secret. We do not like we do not like religion." I was like, "What?" And I went, "Yes, we do not like religion. It's no fun. It's no fun." And, and uh, and, uh, and, they, and, uh, and so I, I, you know, I talked to them about, you know, being Christians and they wouldn't have anything of it, you know. And, and, um, and they, but, but in order to prove to me it was no fun, they said, for example, you know, would you cheat on your wife here? She's not here. I mean, no, hardly anyone you know is here. I said, no, I wouldn't cheat on my wife here. They said, see, they said, you, you, you're, you're bound by these rules. And I, was, and I stopped them. I said, no, I'm not, actually. I said, I'm bound by relationship. The reason I don't cheat on my wife is because I love my wife. She doesn't have to be here. Or the reason I don't show my wife is because I love my children. I've got children who actually think that I'm the guy that they think I am. So I've got to be that guy. So my relationship with my wife dictates, even though my wife and I have never sat down. This would be a strange conversation. You've got all of us who are married. This would be a really co- weird conversation if you had to sit down with your spouse and go, Okay, I know we haven't said this, but I don't think we should date other people. That would be so weird. I mean, if you have to have that conversation, you need to make appointment with Jason. Uh, because uh, this is a, a very weird conversation for a married couple to have. The fact of the matter is, is that my relationship with Angela dictated all of that from the get-go. Completely dictated it. I didn't, I didn't have to ask anybody. I didn't have to ask, is this okay? I knew it already. Relationship dictates ethics. And that, that goes on and on. Like, for example, once you start having kids, you are immediately amazed at how you self-correct everything from language to attitude to everything else because of these little spies from God who are around you all the time and say that because they'll out you. Anywhere, anytime, and so that, that, this kind of thing, all of a sudden, this relationship, you've got all these little mirrors you know, uh, you know, surrounding you, and this relationship now begins to dictate the way that you see yourself in ways that you might not have even picked up prior to that. My attitudes uh, had, to, had to adjust after we have kids because I, I didn't even realize how cynical uh, you know, I, I possibly was until I had kids. And then I realized I'm making a bunch of little miniature 87-year-old men and women a, a, out of my kids. Uh, I've got, and and I, have to, I have to adjust at some point. Relationship dictates that. And here, holiness is not this. I'm God, so you be holy in order to get to me. Be holy, and then I can be your God. It's this. I am your God. And because I'm holy, you're holy. Look at Leviticus 19, right out of the gate, verse 2. You shall be holy for or because I am the Lord your God, I'm holy. I belong to you, you belong to me, and so I am this, holy, and you now must be. So this brings us to the question, well, what is holy exactly? Holy can be, I think the easiest idea is this, it is radically unique holiness is radically unique radically unique for god for us we're just simply tied off to god and so our holiness completely derives from god's holiness there's nobody in here that has any kind of innate holiness about them any kind of holiness that we have is derived from our relationship But God himself is radically unique. You noticed throughout 19 that every once in a while you would find something that would say the word profane. So look at verse 12, for example. You shall not swear by my name falsely. That would have been in a court of law that you would have sworn by God's name. You swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. You can replace the word profane with common. In fact, for my students, I make... Uh, I make two verbs out of uh, things like consecration and profanation because those are really big words that most kids don't use these days. And so, holify and commonize. Holify and commonize. So you could read verse 12 as, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so commonize the name of your God. I am the Lord. See, in the ancient world, there was an interesting thing as an atheist. Everyone knew what the gods were. And everyone had a perspective of what the gods were. And more often than not, the gods were only, and I wouldn't even say merely, an extension of political power and reality. That was all they were. That was what Pharaoh was. Pharaoh was simply, and the gods of Egypt were simply an extension of political power. That's why all the gods had to have these conventional means to do the things that they did. So, if you were a powerful military god, what a coincidence. You happen to be the god of a group of people with a massive army. Or if you were a god who produced great fruitfulness and abundance for his people, what a coincidence. You happen to live on that little place called the Fertile Crescent in the, in the, in the, uh, in the ancient Near East. You're not out in the middle of the desert, for example, dropping manna out of the sky. You, know, just, you just happen to be near a place where everything seems to be fertile. But Yahweh, Yahweh is completely different. He is radically unique. He is not the extent of some political identity or political power. He's not the extent of just some cultural concept. This is a God who in and of himself rescues, creates by divine fiat, calls Israel out of Egypt. And this is the the basis of, in fact, holiness. I am the one who rescued you from Egypt. In Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy says, what God has ever done that? And the rhetorical answer to that is, no God's ever done that. All of the gods are bound to these conventional measures because they are common gods or profane gods. But this God is not bound to anything. Systematic theologians like to use the word aseity. It's a Latin word, but I really like the word. I typically don't drop you know, geeky words like that. I'm, I'm already, uh, you know, I'm an Old Testament scholar. I'm, my my primary work is in the book of Leviticus. I've got just, I'm dripping with geek, <laughs> and so, uh, so, I typically try to stay away from, from that stuff. But this is a great word: a s e i t y, assidity, and this is what it means: radical autonomy. Radical autonomy. No, but he is no, he's not accountable to anyone. He doesn't answer to anybody. There is no one to give him counsel. There is no one to direct him or guide him or correct him. No one. He is absolutely radically unique. And because he is that, then he says people should be as well. But because, specifically because, we're his people. When I was a kid, I had... I was I was bored out of my skull every Sunday at church, and I walked the aisle and said the prayer when I was like five or six. And being a Southern Baptist from the state of Alabama, there was like this big, thick, once saved, always saved kind of doctrine that was really strange. I mean, I believe in eternal security and the per you know the good, classic, robust doctrine, particularly from the Puritans, the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the spirit. I mean, that's a, that's robust stuff, but the the one saved, always saved thing that I grew up with was basically if you just walked the aisle and said the prayer, it was like if you got like a really bad sweater at Christmas and lost the receipt and they wouldn't take it back. That was like what once said, always saved was. It's like, I really don't want to be a Christian. Sorry, you walked the aisle. I, I, I don't want to be Sorry, you walked the aisle. Okay. I mean, it was a really crazy idea. But I just sat in the pews most days and filled in the D's and B's and P's in my bulletin with my pencil, stared at the the, the tiles of the ceiling, when, I figured out, when, when people figured out that I could sing, they put me up on stage. And now church was interesting because I could meet girls and things like that. Uh, and, and so you know, finally, Jesus had some appeal in, 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 that, uh, in that setting. It was really only when I became a Christian that holiness became equal to happiness for me. And it was because Jesus made me holy. Jesus made me holy. He's the only way to get there. There is no way. There is no group of hoops to jump through in order to get to God. God must make you holy. That was what he said in Exodus 19. It's what he said in 1 Peter chapter 2 that our brother read earlier. You are a holy people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? That you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light, into his marvelous light, right? This is an amazing idea, but it's rooted in relationship. I don't know any of you, really. I know some of you, just by chatting with you afterwards. Have you been made holy? Or do you find yourself, oftentimes like I do, like believing that you have to, to jump through hoops in order to get back into God's good graces? Is your repentance a means by which God accepts you? Or do you repent because God has accepted you? God has made you holy. See, the last one, that gives you strength in repentance. If you've ever repented from something like 150 times over the course of a week, and then you say, you know, I I, I would do my devotion today, but... I, mean, I, feel like I, need, I feel like I need some penance time, some insulation between the time that I sin. Because I might, I might just be a hypocrite because I'm kind of halfway planning on sinning again the same way uh, in about an hour and a half. And so uh, that, that kind of thing, that kind of thing, that's why you keep on messing up. But if in fact you say, I have been loved so profoundly and deeply, God's made me a son. God's made me a daughter. I should be a slave. I shouldn't even be a part of this. Love, relationship, begins to offer muscle and teeth that duty can never offer. Holiness is relational. But holiness is also systemic. Now, I mentioned my, the, 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 little, um, the little list that I had. The little list I had could be consolidated down even further to one of my grandma's favorite uh, cliches uh, when she would give, give my, my brother and I and our cousins this advice, um, particularly the guys. She would say, you don't smoke. Drink or chew or go with girls who do. And that was holiness for her. And, um, and so uh, that's a super, you know, I'm, I'm quite confident my, that my grandma went to heaven. Um, but I'm sure the first thing that they said when she got there was, you should have never, ever said that. Uh, and uh, and uh, but so but it was just a really strange, you know, again, just strange kind of, you know, context growing up in, sets of rules. Here's the problem with that set of rules Typically, when you talk about holiness with people, it gets shrunk really super fast down to just a few topics. Um, physical intimacy, right at the top of the list. Um, and, then, and then you can just start ticking down. And, and it's typically holiness ends up being kind of extension of just the culture that you grew up in. Like, I don't know, uh, you know what it was like to grow up in your culture, but in my culture, there were certain things that were valuable to the culture. And so then there were other things that weren't valuable to the culture, so they never talked about them, as if they had nothing to do at all with holiness. So I got, I mean, you could probably figure this out, 1970, you know, in the uh, state of Alabama, uh, what would possibly be the things that they would like and not like? So I got nailed on listening to Led Zeppelin, right? And, and, uh, but nobody ever preached a single sermon on racism, which might have had a little bit of relevance in the state of Alabama in 1970, and, and, but nobody ever, and nobody ever talked about it. And so, uh, so I, I was told not to dance, even though it was loads of dancing. You know, in the Bible, I'm told not to drink alcohol, even though I can't find a place so I'm told not to drink alcohol. in The Bible, I, 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 I was all this stuff was 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 thrown at me, but all of this other stuff wasn't. In other words, everything that was good, conservative, salt of the earth stuff. In the state of Alabama, got filtered into, and holiness became limited by that thing. But look at this. You get this. I think it's fascinating. Now, the way that you can separate off, so for later on if you want to look at this, the way that you can separate off the sections of Leviticus 19 is by those two phrases, one short, one long, I am the Lord or I am the Lord your God. And so that's how the writer, Moses, that's how he segments it off. He wants you to look at him in those, uh, in those places. It's too big for us to, to really plummet everything through here, but, but this is worth looking at. A couple of things, like for example, verse 5 merges with verse 9 and 10. There is no, at the end of the instruction of verse 5, on the sacrifice of peace offerings, there's no I am the Lord, which means that 5 all the way through 10 is to be read like one setting. So look at this. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day uh, that you offer it, On the day after, anything left over on the third day will be burned up with fire. If it's eaten at all on the third day, it's tainted. It won't be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord. Made common, right? He's commonized what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. And then there it is. I am the Lord your God. Here's what this is. This is really interesting. You have the peace offering, and then you have instructions that look like they have nothing to do with the peace offering. When you glean your harvest, when you glean your field, you do not pick up everything. If you drop stuff, you leave it. If, you, if, if, if your gleaners don't pick up the, 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 the grain or the, the, the grapes from the vineyard, you leave them. Why? Well, because the poor and the sojourner, these are technical ideas in, in, the, in the ancient world. These are landless people, people with no ability for redress. They're not they, they in law. They don't Like if you did something to them, they wouldn't be able to do anything back to you. They wouldn't even be able to call on anybody. They have no collateral in land. And, and so they wouldn't even be able to, they'd be, they're really typically helpless people. The poor, more than likely, inherently Israelite. The sojourner, more than likely, not an Israelite. Just someone sojourning with them, just like they sojourned in Egypt. But the writer is intent. If you're going to offer up a peace offering, and you expect it to be accepted, then this, the people that want peace with God, also must have peace with one another. You should also, equally, be offering up what belongs to you. So that those who don't have among you can have. Poor people and sojourners needed grain and they needed wine. That's how they ate. That's how they drank. And so God insists that this be a part of the DNA, the fabric of Israel. It's holy to take care of the poor. It's holy to take care of one another. Verse eleven, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely with one another, or lie to one another. That's not that's not like what you know you deal with, with your kids, this really small element. This is socially. You shall not steal or lie to one This is judicial talk. Judicial talk and economic talk. You shall not swear by my name falsely. That's judicial talk. That's where you did that. was at the gates, at the city gates. And so profane the name of the Lord. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. How in the world are you talking? Right next to it. The wages of a hired servant will not remain with you all night until morning you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind but you shall fear the lord i uh, fear your god i am the lord uh, all of that all of that is bound up in not oppressing your neighbor keep uh, not keeping the, the the wages of someone that you hired with you all night not giving it to them they need that money that's why they're working for you on a daily basis or not not uh, uh, yeah abusing the disabled i don't care what culture you're from that's just this is jacked up. And that kind of idea, though, is part of holiness. The way you treat the disabled is part of holiness. Now, what this does is it says everything about this is systemic. By systemic, I mean this, that you cannot compartmentalize holiness as just religious. That's what that first text did for us. It offered us the peace offering and merged right into it how you deal with your own resources. You cannot compartmentalize them. Now, again, where I'm from, compartmentalization was the key. We dressed differently on Sundays. We sang different music on Sundays. We did everything different on Sundays. Sunday was almost, you know, uh, to the cynical uh, onlooker, could have possibly been a really big show that we were all putting on every Sunday between 8 o'clock and between 12 o'clock, Because the rest of the week, we did not look or sound like that at all, not at all. The ethic that I grew up with, I often hear sometimes, I listen to country music sometimes, and, and um, just typically for, uh, you know, uh, southern buzz. Uh, and, and, uh, and so, uh, but I'm always fascinated, I always start laughing, listening to them talk about God. They reference God as like the man upstairs. Are you kidding? It all throughout the text, he's, he is king of all creation, alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, and the best you've got. Is the man upstairs? I mean, it's incredible. Like, like an old disheveled uncle that lives on the second floor of your house. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, and it's amazing. But that's how we thought about him. I and that's how you can, that's where you can get if you compartmentalize holiness. That this is somehow or another just a religious idea, but it's not. It's systemic. Right here, just to what we've talked about so far, it deals with agrarian, agricultural politics. It deals with economics. It deals with the judiciary. It deals with in, uh, engaging with your own personal economics, with business ethics. It deals with how you deal with the disabled. Later on, it talks about how you deal with the elderly. Right here in verse 13, you shall do no injustice in court. It just says it. All of this is what makes you Holy. So everything about life, everything about life is holy. And if, in fact, you violate this, you have violated the core of who not just you are, but you've thrown aspersion on who God is. I mean, this is what you get, right, in our earliest readers of the Torah. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 beginning with verse 10, sounds like he has just got done reading Leviticus. And then he just rips into Judah. Isaiah is the 8th century prophet. He's speaking to Judah. Judah's in big trouble with Yahweh, and preeminently because they do not know God. In fact, he says that uh, earlier. It's a very famous text from uh, uh, Isaiah. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people don't understand. And so in verse 10, this is what Isaiah says. And, and listen to this. And listen to what he says. You can just hear Leviticus here. Like you know what's in Leviticus. Leviticus is the great New Year's resolution crusher. <laughs> so everybody's doing really well. They have March rolls around and they you know hit seven full chapters of how to kill a domestic animal. And they and, and it's just like I don't know I can do this. And so they, they work their way through it as best they can. But this is what you look at right here in, in, in Isaiah. Listen to it. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. From this point forward, you know nothing about this. Is going to be good. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Says the Lord, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. And then the writer just has to take a break. He says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Do you hear that? That's not compartmentalized, is it? Worship, worship and iniquity. That, it can be uh, So the 8th the century worshiper might say, oh, no, 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 no. We're not worshiping other gods. We're, we're calling on your name. And look at all the, the stuff that we brought. Well... He comments on that. Your new moon and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. This is the way that you pray. Now, you know, you probably taught your kids how to pray just like I taught you know, we taught Karis how to pray when she was a kid. You you, you know, you close your uh, your hands, uh, you maybe you, can, you go on your knees, close your hands, bow your head, close your eyes, things like that. But if we were all ancient near Eastern people, we would do just the opposite. We'd say, oh, no, 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 you don't get on your knees, you stand up, you open your hands, and you keep your eyes open. Well, because you, talk, you, you never close your eyes when you talking to anybody else, right? And so, and so, and so you, you close your eyes, you keep your eyes open, and then you look up. You look up because that's where the gods live, the gods live in the heavens. And that's what they would have done. God says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. And then he says this, because that's all worship talk, Leviticus 1 through 16. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. All of that is ethics. God says, if in fact... You are going to live unethically before me. I have laid out what holiness is. And if you are going to simply render all of that useless and still come and worship me, you have got another thing coming. Because that is not how this works. All of your worship looks like treason to me. Angela and I, when we were, uh, we hadn't been married for a couple of years, but we... I got, uh, my brother invited us up to Nashville. My brother was working on a, a post, uh, a, a terminal degree in chemistry at Vanderbilt. And um, and he um, he invited us up there to this new church that we we're going to. we were going to um, uh, Scotty Smith, who writes for the Gospel Coalition, was the young pastor at this Presbyterian church my brother was going to. And so he, and we went, and it was amazing. It really was. It was incredible. Uh, Angela and I, one of the things, that, for whatever reason, God's providence that happened to us as we we came out of uh, college was that we could not, I mean, if you lined up ten churches and nine of them were healthy, we would go, mm, we'll pick that one. It would be the really unhealthy one. And, I mean, it was incredible how horrible we were at this. And uh, uh, and so, um, but, but, but Mark and Denise, man, they had landed in a really solid church. Well, it's Nashville, right? so afterwards, we go to Sunday school, and, and every Christian contemporary music wannabe and every country music wannabe is in this place, right? And we're this young uh, couple's Bible study, and the Bible study guy, the leader is like this touchy-feely type, uh, yeah, which is not me and, and, uh, or my brother, and he goes, okay, guys, like today, what we're going to do is y'all going to go out. With your spouses, and you could come back. You go tell us what you love about your spouse, what you like about your spouse. I was like, oh man, I, it's, uh, now I love. I, I love flirting with Angela. I take her out. I, I take her out on a date. I want to be funny. I want to be charming. And being funny is hard after 33 years. And really, I, she heard all my jokes. Totally unimpressed. And so, uh, so, I mean, I've got to really work hard at that. But if you throw me up in front of a group like that, that's super awkward. I don't even know really how to, how to act. Uh, Angela, knowing this, though, helped me you know, go through it. My brother, who's even more socially backwards than me, you know, was helped by his wife. And so, yeah, and we, we got through it. And it, and it went all around the room. And like I said, you, you got all these country music and Christian music wannabes there. And so they're saying stuff like, when I look into her eyes. I see her so, I said, oh, gosh, <laughs> women fall for that? Really, man, that's amazing. I, it's, how are you not single? Uh, I mean, it's uh, incredible. Yeah, and, um, and so it we, we went on and on and on until it got right on the completely opposite side of the room. And this woman, with the opportunity to say all this, to, you know, about her husband, this is what she says. And she said it like this. She goes, pass, just like that. My brother, this is how stupid my brother and I were. I looked at my brother and I was like, we could have done that? Yeah, 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 it's not picking up on, oh, this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. Yeah, so, we, we, so we finally got back to it, you know. The husband, special, kind of stupid. Yeah, yeah, you know, just His wife just refused, refused to say anything positive about him. And he launches into a litany of her excellencies. And as he's doing this, she is getting mad. She's getting angrier and angrier. And finally, she just throws the chair that she's sitting in up against the wall, storms out the door. I mean, it was, it was like a, it was a scene. And this guy's still talking. And so we're just like, how? What is exactly the endgame for this guy? Well, you can probably guess what the problem was. They'd only been together for like four years, and he'd already been caught five times. Five times with other women. And here he is in church, launching a litany of her excellencies. Now, you feel that, don't you? You feel the tension between having this religious moment and talking about the excellencies of his wife while clearly making it obvious to her throughout real life that she's nothing particularly special at all. You feel that, don't you? That's this. That's exactly what this is. You cannot compartmentalize this. This is systemic. It bleeds through everything. Everything. The last thing is related to systemic, but it's, it's a little bit different than systemic, and that's holiness is social. In other words, holiness is not some kind of inner kind of feeling that you have, not some sort of privatized morality. This is out for everyone to see. This is out for everybody to see. And, 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 it's, and it runs through every single com- possible component of Israel's, uh, of Israel's life. Some of the things that you, you already know, you, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You don't take vengeance. You don't bear a grudge. You love your neighbor as yourself. Later on, you love the sojourner as yourself. The, 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 you know, the systemic ideas of, of, of not breeding cattle and not wearing different clothing, this was all this, this exposed social testimony of the absolute monolithic commitment that Israel had toward Yahweh. It identified them over against Egypt, where they came from, over against Canaan to where they were going. That's why in the New Testament, things like this and the food laws just get nullified, because now there is no ethnic distinction. Now the elect are supra-ethnic. There's a place like this room. Um, Many of you from different uh, parts of Asia. There's people here from South America uh, background. Um, uh, I'm uh, from uh, uh, Irish background, and and, um, and, uh, particularly from, uh, like I said, uh, Alabama, from the deep south, which I doubt very seriously any of you grew up in we're all connected and it's, this is a social idea right and so those 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 particular laws don't really apply a, a, anymore they're, they're almost liquidated because they don't highlight the ethnicity the ethnicity is not an issue for us anymore we're bound together we look forward to the day in fact that the writer of Revelation celebrates when every tribe tongue and nation very distinct distinct enough for the writer to be able to tell Every tribe, tongue, and nation is gathered around the throne, singing and feasting to the Lamb, to the one who made us holy to begin with. But prior to that, holiness is social. I and mean, we we go right back to Isaiah. Isaiah is highlighting this. He's highlighting that this is social. This is out front. And it's so out front that if, in fact, you continue in the way that Judah was going, you eventually lose everything to the gods that you're bowing the knee to Monday through Saturday. Amos chapter 7 is maybe one of the most potent texts that I know of in showing how this happens. Back in 1 Kings chapter 12, the split of the kingdom of Israel, you, Jeroboam was the king of the north. And Jeroboam uh, decided that Israel, the northern kingdom, needed its own religion. And so he just created the religion. Um, that you can read about it in 1 Kings 12. He just created the religion. He put two uh, you know, temple wannabes in Dan and Bethel, Ark of the Covenant wannabes in both the temples, rerouted the entire religious calendar, let non-Levites be priests. I mean, he just created the entire religion. In other words, the religion was nothing more than an extension of political reality now in the northern kingdom of Israel. What did we just say a while ago that all the other gods in the in ancient ways were? Non-holy gods. They're extensions of the political realities. That's exactly what Jeroboam I made. And by the time we get to Amos, Jeroboam II, listen to what Amaziah the high priest says to Amos. Verse 10, Amaziah the high priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. land is not able to bear his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam will die by the sword. Just Jeroboam II, die by the sword, and Israel will go into exile. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah. Eat bread there, prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary. It's a temple of the kingdom. He didn't even mention God. I mean, they've got, they're so far gone that the high priest doesn't even feel compelled to even put on a front. Socially, you go back through Amos, and the social structure of Amos is just riddled with the same kind of stuff Isaiah talked about. Injustice, oppression, and all of this within the covenant people. This was supposed to be the people that was Holy. Their social expression, you should have been able to look in on them and clearly see some kind of testimony to some other kind of God that, that nobody else would have known. We, we, back in Redeemer, we called this being a fishbowl community. And this is what you, I, I'm quite confident, that Jason, we want you to be. He want you to be a fishbowl community that n- not so much that people would maybe see you at work and just realize that you're a really nice person. I don't know that anybody's ever said, "Man, I think I should be a Christian because this guy's a nice person." That might—I mean, it might happen. I don't know, but I can promise you that if you show them a community that is not bound together by politics, is not bound together by ethnicity, is not bound together by anything else other than the cross, you will show them a testimony to an alternative, subversive. Reality in a social testimony like that is priceless. This is why things in the New Testament makes sense, like church discipline. Church discipline is the thing you've got to do to someone who's decided that they are simply going to embrace the common testimony that's integral to them. And you beg them and beg them and beg them not to until you have to let them go. Because the testimony of the group has got to be to the holiness of God, to the uniqueness of the cross. We, we, we had to deal with that quite, quite a bit our Redeemer. But this is the idea of holiness. Holiness is relational. Holiness is systemic. There's no compartmentalization. Holiness is social. People can see it. They can see it. And it's not something that that they can even see while you're by yourself. They have to see it as you're connected to one another. Holiness, being social, means that holiness can't just simply be individuated. For example, there were things that I did uh, when I was uh, trying to be really religious when I was in junior high and high school that I don't think made much of a difference to anything. In fact, uh, in fact, uh, it might have even, I uh, might have done damage to people by making them think that if they didn't do A, B, and C, that that made them acceptable to God. And that's a horrible thing to convince to, to somebody of. The social aspect of my testimony is seen because I'm embedded into a local church, embedded to other believers. And so what you get in the New Testament, I mean, it's really remarkable how often you've got, you know, Jesus in Matthew 5 saying that non-believers will look on your acts of, 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 uh, and your good works, and they'll give glory to God who's in heaven. That's way past just being kind to people. That's 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 doing good works. Doing good works in the uh, uh, in the New Testament is uh, far far past just you know being nice or not 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 going to the movies or not playing cards. That was a big one growing up. I, I still haven't figured out how cards made it into that particular. Um, uh, but um, if you look at the Book of Titus, Titus ties the gospel to ethics better than any other place. I'm having trouble finding it. It's in the New Testament. Uh, And um, uh, (laughs) I'm sure I can find it here. There it is. Yeah, and and so Titus, look at chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's all types of people everywhere, all types of people everywhere. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. How, how, how are you holy? How do you maintain holiness? How are you trained in holiness? Grace. Grace trains you in holiness. You don't train yourself in holiness. Grace trains you in holiness. The grace of God saves you, and then it trains you to renounce ungodliness, trains you to renounce worldly passions, trains you to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, and then nourishes your affections. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. And then the writer, and Paul can't help himself. He just has to talk about Jesus here for a second. The appearing of our glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and here it is, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Later on in verse 14 of chapter 3, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not being fruitful. I, I think that, that that's the way that New Testament writers talk about holiness. They talk about the thing that, that, that the people of God are supposed to be. They're supposed to be this. They're supposed to be this, this new social testimony to the reality of God. What does that look like for us? I typically um, go back to the 1960s for this because I think oftentimes it's very difficult for us to uh, to grab hold of our own current day. And so sometimes maybe getting close to it and then letting us make a jump uh, on our own is, is, is I've, I've found to be helpful. In 1965, one of the probably most heinous and horrible moments of the Civil Rights Movement occurred with John Lewis taking a group of marchers over the Edmund Pettus Bridge meeting up with white citizens, white law enforcement, and the white National Guard who just simply beat the life out of them. And so I always give this alternative reality, this alternative scenario. What if 65 were rolled around, Lewis and the other members of the, the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference organized this march to march over a bridge named for a former Confederate general and grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, Edmund Pettus. And as they marched over the bridge, they saw what was at the bottom of the bridge. But the new thing they saw in my alternative reality that fits what holiness is, is they also saw a thousand white believers who just the day before had been in church and had confessed that Jesus was the Savior of all people had sung beautiful songs like we sung today. And now they were putting it to work. Now, now it looked real. Now they were showing everyone that their holiness did not simply belong to them on Sundays when they were dressed nice, but it belonged to them today. And these were their brothers and sisters. The vast majority of black people in the 1960s Confess Christianity. It was was very much a part of the culture. And they insulate them. And they say basically to the powers that be, all that look exactly like them, we don't belong to you. We belong to them. They belong to us. Whatever you do to them, you have to do to us. If you're going to beat them, then you're going to beat us. If you're going to jail them, you're going to jail us. We can't pull them up to where white people lived socially in the 1960s. So we will bereft ourselves of any privilege that we can in order to make the point that we belong to them because of the gospel. I, I'm a professor at a university. I can tell you that if that had happened, we would be at a very different place today in the discussion. But that didn't happen. That did not happen. Well, the reason it didn't happen is because of the way that holiness was thought of. So individuated. It's just compile a little list of things that are offensive to your culture, and well, that's holiness. No, 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 no. Holiness is relational. The relationship that you have with Jason and Karis, who look nothing like the majority of you, is because. God has saved both of you and bound you together as a family. Made you family. A new family. Really that exceeds all of the limits of biology. New family. Holiness becomes that thing that is ubiquitous in your life. is everywhere in your life. You can't just have this list. In fact, you just get rid of the list, and you allow the relationship to just dictate everything about you. You, you want to know why not to watch movies with gratuitous scenes in them? Well, just ask yourself, Would Jesus, who died to destroy the work of the devil, would he value this? Well, no, he came to die to destroy it, to destroy it, so, so maybe I shouldn't watch it. You have to exercise wisdom in things like this. You can be redemptive in how you engage the arts, but you got to ask questions. You can't just make it so simple. But when you're talking to someone about becoming a Christian, do you try to morally reform them? When they're in our family, I think it's that, that, that is the first thing that we almost always try to do. this is not the gospel, though. The gospel is not, hey, you hand me this moral package that you're living by, and I'll hand you this one. Now that you're living by this one, right, it's holy. That's not holy. No, the gospel is. Jesus is so profoundly good, unsurpassably good, that you'll walk away from anything and everything once you finally see him. When you give people Jesus, you draw people to holiness. When you embrace Christ just on a daily basis, everything about you becomes different. And when you listen to your pastor and you, and you shape the life, that this, this equip class you've been doing is phenomenal. That's not just incidental, though. That's not just something that the nine marks guys do, right? This is something that Christians have done for thousands of years because it matters what we look like. Together matters what we look like together. matters how we live life together because holiness is social. God, who has made us holy, called us out of darkness into his marvelous light so that we could proclaim the excellencies of him. Not simply in the ways that we sing when we get together, but the way that we live life in every aspect of our life for his great glory. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters and ask that you would bless them and keep them and cause your face to shine on them. In the name of Christ, amen.